Welcome to this bonus episode of the podcast series, Pseudoscience, Fake News, and How to Fight Back, supported by a grant from the Open Society Foundation and in partnership with the Challenging Pseudoscience Group at the Royal Institution of Great Britain. My name is Robert Pyra. Together with my colleague, Professor Marius Turda, we've invited listeners during this series to join a conversation about the meaning of history and the role of science in today's society. Over several episodes, distinguished experts on Central Europe have offered their thoughts on how history and science have become weaponized to support anti-liberal agendas, particularly during the last few years. Today, in this episode, we look back at our conversations so far, highlighting aspects specific to each country case, but also drawing out common themes relevant to the region and potentially beyond. This episode has two sections. In the first, we summarise the main characteristics and strategies of anti-liberal regimes. Then, in the second, look at how individuals, civil society and the international community alike might react. These take the form of headline lessons, such as being alert to emotion-trumping fact, looking for the agenda in any piece of information, empowering institutions and individuals to counter disinformation, and plenty more. But before we get to that at the end of this episode, let's look at the context. What are the contours of liberalism today? First, but also last among our case studies, is Hungary. We deliberately chose to bookend the series with discussions about the country, since it has most literally positioned itself as an epicentre of modern illiberalism in Europe today. Across two episodes, Professor Turda and his guests drew attention to how its current leadership, under Viktor Orban, has pursued a path of so-called illiberal democracy, his phrase, challenging European Union norms and assumptions across both politics and the media. Professor Turda opened the discussion by asking Professor Ferenc Laszlo of Maastricht University to explain the political context. And there's one word you used, which perhaps you can explain a bit for our audience, which is populism. Those of us familiar with Hungarian history would know there is an internal discussion, which was called in the interwar period populist. However, there are very significant differences from that form of populism overall, but also uh, the type of Hungarian debate about populism in the interwar period and what nowadays people are calling populists and the way indeed you refer to Orban as a populist politician. And I think what we have today, and that's again the, the, the point about the Orban regime, Orban is also an, an, a phenomenon which is clearly internationally embedded. I, I like to emphasize, you know, that he's often seen as somehow almost unique in the context of the European Union. But when you look at global politics, you bring in cases such as, you know, Trump uh, in the US, Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil, uh, Modi uh, in India or others. We may mention Putin or Netanyahu. This is really a global trend uh, of a new kind of right-wing populism, and Orban really learns a lot uh, from from his uh, counterparts in other countries, really draws uh, on their methods, on their strategies uh, quite uh, directly. So I think that's, again, we're talking here about a very different kind of early 21st century uh, populism. So populism is the basis of this new illiberalism, but what's behind it? And what do we learn from the Hungarian case? Professor Turda identified a key feature of regimes as diverse as Trump's, Orban's, or even resurgent communism 
as being a return to so-called master narratives. That is, when politicians look to use simplified, partial or myth-based versions of national history to serve their present-day agendas. In short, outs with complexity, and typically things like the role of minorities, and in with divisive rhetoric. So the next question is, why do these narratives resonate? Here's Ferenc Laszlo again on Orban's playbook, starting with step one. Activate elements of society already concerned with themes that suit your narrative. There have been various state-led attempts since 2010 to reshape cultural memory and also to reshape what actually qualifies as historical research in the first place. And uh, these have been attempts to to establish right-wing hegemony through a new old construction of historical identity. And these constructions have drawn directly uh, on ideas and also on activities of nationalistic members of civil society. I think that's very important uh, to understand this this logic, that it doesn't just come from above. It is actually really quite deeply embedded uh, in Hungarian uh, society. Step two. Go further still, using history to increase your voting power by spinning national themes in a partisan and emotive way. For Hungary, Laszlo again mentions two themes. First, the Treaty of Trianon after the First World War, which drastically shrunk Hungarian territory. Orban canonized this as a national trauma, but then used it as a means of extending citizenship to ethnic Hungarians left outside the country's borders after that treaty. And these citizens are, of course, by and large, ready-made voters for his party, Fidesz. But there's more. Now, the second, I think, key theme, uh, which I would like to highlight, uh, concerns the thesis of the double occupation, this idea that... uh, the Nazis and also the Soviets basically invaded uh, Hungary and totalitarian dictatorships were imposed uh, on the country, right? That they basically inflicted uh, traumas uh, on Hungarian society uh, and Hungarian society was, was, was deprived uh, of, of the chance to, uh, to live under a sovereign state, right? So the idea is that this, this dual occupation is also a way of talking about national sovereignty. And, uh, and I think this is particularly convenient for nationalists in Hungary because it really effaces uh, the responsibility of the Hungarian state for the, for the mass crimes during uh, the Second World War, right? The idea is it's, it's the Nazis, it's the Germans who are responsible. And it's also very convenient uh, internationally uh, in the current uh, situation because this uh, narrative on the, on the double uh, occupation, I would say, aligns uh, Hungary very closely with a wider uh, regional discourse, right? If you look at Poland or if you look at the Baltic states or also a host of other post-communist states, they, they actually have a shared interest on the European level to talk about this double uh, occupation. Clearly, there are strong cross-regional narratives at work. And in our series, we hear how this theme of double victimhood takes physical form in state-sponsored museums. As Professor Turda mentions, in the House of Terror, set up in 2002 in Budapest, to display parallel crimes of communism and Nazism. And in my discussion with Professor Jan Grabowski, similar processes are described, including the reshaping of Poland's Museum of the Second World War towards a flattering national narrative. A third pillar is the criminalization of communism, to delegitimize the liberal democratic project 
after 1989. Now, while that may sound like a contradiction, here's Laszlo's explanation, specifically looking at Hungary. I think there's also kind of a new approach to history, which really emphasizes the criminal nature of Soviet communist rule, right? This is something we've seen, again, all across uh, Eastern Europe. But in Hungary, I think it takes a slightly peculiar form in the sense that it's also there to delegitimize the left as a whole. Uh, so again, the a key element there is this emphasis that uh, the, the transition to liberal democracy in 1989 was was half-hearted, and that only Fidesz's major victory uh, in 2010 then truly enabled a kind of national restoration and a kind of national, uh, a project of national uh, renewal, right? So here the idea is that you have to overcome the compromises of the transition period, and through that you're also overcoming a liberal democracy at the, at the very same time. This theme, once again, overlaps with Poland, the subject of our second episode. As a historian directly implicated in that country's debate on history and in especially on the Holocaust, my interviewee, Professor Jan Grabowski of the University of Ottawa, Canada, expressed firm views about illiberal developments there. The problem here is that politics and uh, history are inseparable and are being used and preyed upon, history is being preyed upon uh, by various uh, political uh, parties. Now, in the most recent case in Poland, most of us are familiar with this uh, illiberal, let's say, trend or illiberal revolution or counter-revolution, which tends to undermine the underpinnings, uh, the foundations of the civic and democratic society. And unfortunately, an attack perpetrated nowadays by the current authorities on Polish history is a part of a very large design. For Grabowski, this goes even further than the currently ruling nationalists. As we heard with relation to Hungary, certain historical narratives find deeper resonance, helping win votes by uniting both government and opposition. Here, my guest drew upon his experience with other international researchers examining Polish-Jewish relations during the Holocaust. We insist that um, Polish-Jewish relations uh, during the war were extremely troubled, that uh, actually the attitudes of the Polish society were permeated with anti-pre-war and wartime anti-Semitism, that the, not collusion, but let's say not cooperation even, but the certain complicity for certain, of certain segments of the Polish society in the German genocidal project cannot be denied, should not be denied. And here, this kind of historical Search triggers extraordinary anger and concern of the Polish authorities and, of course, large segments of the Polish society that are not interested in acquiring this knowledge, that are all interested in rejecting this, these findings. So this is the scenario which explains the arrival on international scene of these curious documents, such as the Polish Holocaust Law of 2018. But once again, this kind of feel-good historical narrative based on wishful thinking, not on historians' findings, is something that today is being successfully used by the nationalists, not only to consolidate their own electorate, but also looking for votes outside their usual habitual pool of, of electorate. This, I suggest, is in contrast to other areas where the opposition and government more openly disagree. 
for example, on questions of minority or women's rights, including abortion, or how to deal with the communist past, such as investigating even such resistance heroes as Lech Wałęsa for alleged complicity in that regime. Professor Grabowski also mentions the question of citizenship-based democracy, which the nationalists in Poland, as they do in Hungary, reject, in favour of more exclusive and retrograde ethnic definitions, harking back to the 1930s. Grabowski also notes another strand in the Polish playbook, which carries a particularly strong emotional resonance there. In Poland, history, national history, has been elevated to the level of religion. And I'm not hesitant to use this, uh, this analogy here. This is clearly an effective strategy, since it appeals to the emotional connection almost all Poles have with Catholicism. This goes above and beyond any spiritual function, due to its long association with safeguarding national traditions under foreign occupation. As such, the present-day nationalists can appeal to a wide constituency, or else conflate their own narrower version of history and politics with a broader appeal to patriots of all stripes. A related method of what might be called soft coercion is then described, one that lacks the physical coercion of the type seen perhaps in Turkey or Russia, but which Professor Grabowski says may still lead to dangerous consequences. What happens in Poland today is this vicious denial of the Holocaust, which is not to say that they deny the factuality of the Holocaust. They simply deny the fact that Polish society had anything to do with the, with the event. Now, all of this is being conducted in atmosphere of verbal brutality, which you can hardly imagine, fostered and propelled by the official Polish agendas, institutions of the Polish state, including Ministry of Education, including various institutions such as the notorious Institute of National Remembrance. So these are, I mean, historians like I uh, see our own faces plastered on the first pages of weeklies, nationalistic or even centrist uh, pro-government weeklies with, uh, with subtitles, uh, traitors, uh, deniers, um, slanderers of good name. Now, we have to understand that words, as we as historians know very well, words have a tendency of being transformed into deeds, into actions. Uh, and this kind of uh, evil that is being perpetrated now uh, uh, on independent scholars, uh, educators, will definitely have consequences. Rather than a piecemeal set of policies, the professor sees this as a deliberate program, including dismantling the independence of the judiciary, spending vast sums of money on memory institutions to control the narrative about history, changing school curricula, taking control of the media, and firing undesirables from jobs. All of these being justified with the so-called national course, shaped by a very selective version of history. The nationalists are not very shy about their intents. The, several years ago, long before the Law and Justice Party arrived in power, uh, its leader, uh, one Mr. Kaczynski, he proclaimed in one of his speeches that one day we shall build Budapest in Warsaw. Now, people sort of, you know, laughed at the time. It was perhaps five years before they came to power, but there is no doubt that they are reading from a book which can be called, I would call it Orban Putin book. These people know that democracy is a deadly threat for them. Let's say freedom of choice is a direct challenge to their rule. Now, once again, in order to control 
the society in order to force the illiberal change, they simply help themselves to the toolbox from history. Alongside these two well-developed and often explicitly illiberal regimes, Hungary and Poland, the wider story in the region is, of course, much more heterogeneous and broad. In some cases, countries have flirted with illiberalism, applied aspects of it, or as we learn in the case of Romania, have moved towards a form of nationalism, particularly under cover of the recent pandemic. Marius Turda discussed this case with Ciprian Michali, a professor from the city of Cluj in Transylvania. My first question to you, Ciprian, is this. Has the political culture in Romania changed significantly since the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic? I believe that uh, the epidemic uh, has rather accelerated certain trends which were already latent in Romanian society. And I would like to highlight here two of these trends which were then fully manifested during the December 2020 elections. I think the first one is the hostility of Romanian civil society towards the former left-wing power, you know, represented by the Social Democratic Party, well known for its numerous corruption scandals and the incompetence of many political and administrative figures of this power. And this hostility has allowed the anti-corruption discourse to gain uh, ground around a new party, the USM party, especially Union Save Romania, which created an alliance with another young party, PLOS, uh, the party of liberty, unity and solidarity. And an important part of the society, of the public, was attracted by discourse of, on anti-corruption. The second trend, which is more dangerous in somehow, is the official birth of the Romanian extreme right. He mentions such occurrences as the referendum on the family, which despite its failure in 2018, helped galvanize traditionalist forces. And the emergence in 2020 of a new party, openly assuming this xenophobic discourse and actively promoting anti-vax narratives. To everyone's surprise, this party, called the Alliance for the Union of Romanians, entered parliament with 10% of voters' preferences. And I think there are the two major tendencies in Romanian politics since the last years. Professor Turda summarizes the developments as follows. I want to highlight something you pointed out, Ciprian, which I think is relevant to our conversation here, which is the rise of racism, xenophobia, chauvinistic behavior, anti-Roma attitudes, anti-vaccination. So you have a quite a widespread campaign of misinformation and disinformation on the one hand. At the same time, you have, as you rightly pointed out, some domestic factors contributing to the emergence of some forms of political behavior, which was always present in the Romanian culture which is, of course, nationalism and the idea that Romania needs to protect itself from the outside world and it's under siege. So you have this siege mentality in combination with a misinformation campaign, which is more or less international. He goes on to note a particular feature of the Romanian case, being how the intellectual class has also tilted towards these discourses, despite the efforts of actors such as our interviewee, who blames society's susceptibility to fake news, conspiracy theories and nationalist distortions on the following. It's a lack of um, media culture, but also lack of um, education. 
So people are very exposed to fake news. They lost the capacity to make distinctions, elementary distinctions. I will give you an example. I was yesterday in a rural region of Romania. I met a lot of people non-vaccinated, not vaccinated at all. They are not stupid people. They are simple people which were absolutely manipulated by this kind of discourse. One from 10 maybe is vaccinated and in general because he or she has to do it in their job. But otherwise, people are completely out of the public discourse, completely out of the action of the government. But then we hear of the media's role. A very huge campaign of fake news and conspiracy theories. There are some TV channels which are promoting every single day this kind of discourses. Such distortions in the media have clear political consequences. So there are direct causes of the rising of the extreme right, but there are also non-direct causes coming from the past, coming from different issues non-negotiated with the past. You know, assuming the heritage of communism, assuming the heritage of anti-Semitic politics, assuming the heritage of extreme right during the Second World War, etc. All these problems were not negotiated and um, resolved. And periodically, they are coming back. Is the le retour du refoulé. People are not learning anything about, <laughs> about past experience, about past positions, uh, past discourses or uh, measures, we are in the same point. We are running very fast to remain in the same place. Standing back from the discussion, Marius Turda posed this question. Do you think that the success of anti-vaccination campaigns in Romania and the success of misinformation and disinformation overall is related to the fact that in certain areas, the state is weak or the state is unwilling to intervene? So you mentioned some of the topics such as racism, education, history, coming to terms with the past. But you also have other issues which are very present in society in Romania. Housing, disadvantaged children, domestic abuse, minority rights, hospitals, very pressing issues and very real issues for the majority of the population. And do you see here a need for the civil society to be more active in those areas in which the state is weak? So this is, I can say without hesitation, that the most important actor and the most accurate barometer of Romanian democracy over the last 10 years is civil society. But it's a very important role also during the pandemic. As the government, you know, like all governments in the world, struggled to manage the health crisis. And as the political class was at the same time mobilized for the electoral campaign from December 2020 elections, public interventions and public messages of the state were often hesitant, incoherent, and opportunistic. In terms of illiberalism, the playbook we see here is related in some respects, but also different from Poland or indeed Ukraine. Instead of a national government forcibly directing its course, as Marius Turda notes, here it rests on a complex interaction of a weak state, a ratings-hungry media, and an audience that's inherently more susceptible to fake, anti-vaxxer distortions or far-right political discourses filling an educational vacuum. However, a more optimistic note concerns the relatively well-developed network of civil society institutions 
that help mitigate some of the effects on a social level. In the case of Ukraine, the tone is, in some ways, more positive still, but of course also rather mixed. In my interview with Professor Jean-Paul Himka, Emeritus Professor of the University of Alberta, Canada, we heard how the question of using or abusing history and scientific language for illiberal politics is even less straightforward here. Ukraine is a country that only gained independence as late as 1991 and is well known for its complex geopolitical situation and somewhat divided affinities. The resulting political scene is described as both opaque and frequently shifting. So, for example, we we know that supposedly mortal enemies were Petro Poroshenko, who was the previous president of Ukraine, and Viktor Medvedchuk, who was supposed to be a pro-Russian. Uh, in fact, he's now charged with state treason. Turns out that those two were in regular, regular correspondence, uh, regular interaction, because Ukraine is run in a different way than many other countries, which is that there are some very powerful businessmen with huge corporate interests who run the country among themselves. And, and it's very difficult to get a handle on what's happening. But there have been times when politics of history, memory politics, have played important roles for these politicians. So, and I don't think that these are necessarily issues that these politicians believe in, although, of course, they don't not believe in them, if you know what I mean. Mm. They don't, for them, these are just instruments. So it started with Viktor Yushchenko, I would say, who was the president of Ukraine after the Orange Revolution, 2004 and then 2008 when he lost. And then 2010, he left office. But he was the one who started it off by giving posthumous awards, Hero of Ukraine, to various leaders of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists and to the uh, various leaders of the Ukrainian insurgent army, in spite of their historical record. And he was the first to promote the career of the person they call Ukraine's memory czar, our memory commissar, uh, Volodymyr Vyatrovich, who enjoyed, came to prominence right after the uh, Orange Revolution in the later term also of Yushchenko. And the next president, Viktor Yanukovych, drew back on this issue. He was not a supporter of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. He stripped some of the leaders of their posthumous awards as hero of Ukraine. He continued to uh, honor the victims of the famine, but kind of moved away from that genocidal portrayal of it, which had existed earlier. Then, as you know, he was overthrown, uh, not voted out, but overthrown in 2014 during the Euromaidan and came to power a much more nationalistic-oriented government, even more than that of Yushchenko. And that would have been the government, particularly Petro Poroshenko, when he, again, a very, very rich businessman, owner of media, owner of chocolates, owner, owner of many things. In other words, national themes are indeed used in Ukraine, but they come and go. The professor went on to describe Poroshenko's strategy as president, naming streets, schools and so on after nationalists, and using the slogan of faith 
language, army, to counter Russian influence. But equally, the Russian factor continues to complicate matters. Well, the problem is, uh, as I see it, is that the largely Russophone population of Ukraine absorbs a lot of media from Russia. And that's kind of post-Soviet message. If you consider Putin illiberal, which I certainly do, then there are many people who think he's okay in that, you know, where there's a strong Russian and Russophone population, there's a group of people who feel that's not just okay, it's, it's the way to go forward. So it's a different kind of illiberalism. You know, the nationalists, they're all over Ukraine, but they're concentrated in the West. Pro-Putin type forces, they're all over Ukraine, but they're mainly in the East and South. So there's that kind of double whammy. In this context, and given the professor's recent work on the Holocaust, I wondered whether this theme could be a rare rallying point for Ukraine, as we heard it was for Poland, according to Professor Grabowski. That's to say, uniting a nation around minimizing painful historical narratives. However, the answer was a firm no. Instead, he saw developments in the light of international tendencies to engage with painful history in a wider humanist perspective, rather than a narrowly national one mobilized by a government. Well, people in Canada are interested now in uh, discovering the history of what happened to the indigenous people. A lot of Americans are very interested in uh, coming to terms with slavery and the Jim Crow laws. Uh, People in Britain are also interested in looking at that imperial past. You know, Germany looks, you know, this is, there are people who say, hold it. You know, and those the people of that kind in Ukraine are growing. They're, and they're the same, they're exactly the same demographic as all the progressive forces in the three countries I mentioned. They're younger, they're more educated. There are Holocaust scholars in Ukraine right now who are just uh, super young people. It's just fantastic. Given this is a grassroots movement being described, I challenge the extent to which this percolates into national politics. And the professor agreed that such themes, as perhaps in Romania, can often be a distraction from wider issues that preoccupy governments, such as education or housing. And he also points to the most recent president, Zelensky, who in fact finally won on a ticket of anti-corruption rather than identity politics. So far so optimistic. But again, Russia does loom large in the Ukrainian discussion. It is hard with the messaging coming out of Russia. Russia has been supporting illiberal politics in America, throughout Europe. I will refrain from giving my thoughts on the Middle East. But, you know, that's, and they've got a large audience in Ukraine. This is just a fact. So much then for the shape of illiberalism in key case studies from Central Europe. As we've heard, These range in extremity from full state-sponsored takeovers of institutions, of re-spinning history and national identity to support illiberal goals, through to more hybrid situations where fake news can weaken resistance, for instance to scientific arguments or discussions about vaccines, or where outside interference can hamper grassroots attempts to have a more enlightened or settled view on a country's past and indeed its future. So if this is the general context, what do we learn about how to fight back? 
In each of these cases, we can extrapolate more useful conclusions for academics and intellectuals, but beyond, also potentially for politicians, international institutions, NGOs, and for each of us as citizens, no matter where we are or what we do. So here are the lessons. Number one, especially where narratives of national history are in play, be alert to emotion or moral outrage being used as a way of overcoming facts. Here's Ferenc Laszlo again on Hungary. Fidesz is really obsessed uh, with locating and responding to criticism internationally. You know, you can really see that all the time when something like a significant article gets published about Hungary, you can almost be sure that somebody will, you know, offer a, a rebuttal, a kind of official uh, response within a day or two, because they really want to impute intentions to their authors, and they really kind of want to reveal the supposed biases uh, behind these kinds of uh, criticisms. And this, you know, this really reinforces a sense of being besieged, and it feeds a kind of culture of polarization, and it generates an emotional regime, to my mind, uh, that really revolves around moral outrage, right? So again, for, for a kind of populist voter who is actually in power, the most important thing is to wake up and to, to again feel this uh, moral outrage, which, you know, to my mind is basically false uh, moralizing, but we have to understand that false moralizing is a major uh, political force. In other words, keep a clear and sober head in the face of an emotive onslaught. In the Polish case, we heard about the deliberate conflation of Catholicism with a narrower nationalist agenda. Perhaps one way out is to disaggregate the two. Speaking of patriotism rather than nationalism, separating religion as a common cultural bond from its narrowest interpretation, one driven by a divisive party political agenda rather than one that really speaks to all definitions of a country. But as we've heard, a certain emotional distance might not be enough. So here, we define a second lesson. Number two, combat emotive populism by making fact and science-based information easier to understand and easier to access. Here's Ciprian again. I think the major point here is courage. The academic community should have the courage to expose publicly ideas. But the courage of public discourse is not present there. And what we have to do is to create the link between science and public, a kind of good vulgarization, good popularization of science, strong sciences, uh, physics, uh, chemistry, of course, medicine, etc., but also human sciences. Uh, social and human sciences, in order to explain uh, to people significations of different events, of different situations, of global situations. From this, we derive a third lesson. Education is the first line of attack, by liberal regimes perhaps, but also of defence, one with both possibilities and some limitations. Firstly, we heard from Professor Grabowski that we may tend to overplay the role of academia, especially historians at university level. As he mentions, school curricula are probably more crucial tools of illiberalism, given their wider social reach and direct impact on the youngest minds. But there are things that those on the outside can do to help. 
Of course, the, the freedom of speech is, um, is threatened here. Uh, our expectations cannot be as high, but, but there are certain things which can be done. One which I tend to very strongly advocate for is that uh, we in the West, I in Canada, uh, we have to provide the platforms to make this uh, people who are vocal, who are strong, let's say strongly committed to fighting this wave of illiberal tide or trying to stop it. We have to give them platforms on which they can express themselves. It can be a conference can be a fellowship, it can be facilitating their access to print translations of their work into conference languages. Professor Himka elaborates a similar thought for Ukraine, talking about an engaged grassroots response among younger researchers to painful episodes in national history. All these scholars benefit a lot from support from Western institutions like the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, or Asian institutions like Yad Vashem in Israel, or the Middle mm-hmm. Eastern, you know, so without that, they would be crushed. However, he notes that this strategy isn't entirely uncontroversial, and works only in more permissive environments such as Ukraine is today. There are certain NGOs which are more liberal than others. People like George Soros or Harold Binder in Austria, who funds the Center for Urban History of East Central Europe in Lviv, these have been these have been crucial people creating these kind of NGOs. If they were in Putin's Russia or Lukashenko's Belarus, or for that matter, in my province of Alberta, foreign money coming and trying to influence ideas, it can be a real no-no. But I think that um, times are changing. And Ukrainians are ever more sophisticated. So, what about situations where the media or education are already in illiberal hands? Lesson four. Defend free speech, fight cancel culture, and resist moral relativism. What does this all mean? It refers to a key strategy used by actors as diverse as the television station Russia Today, now branded RT, and illiberal governments in Europe alike, namely to discredit or dissolve any factual criticism by branding it mere opinion or indeed fake news. In other words, the term fake news itself, as famously weaponized by Trump, becomes a kind of double bluff, sowing confusion in the listener and deliberately casting a fog of uncertainty around what is fact or opinion. Here's Ferenc Laszlo again on the Hungarian example. The large majority of local media uh, in Hungary today uh, is in the hands uh, of the state and its close uh, allies. There's absolutely no uh, doubt about that. But the regime is still fighting the few remaining independent outlets in the name of breaking liberal hegemony, abolishing the dominance of the leftist ideas, and, and so on and so forth, right? Now, Now, this constantly uh, draws on the idea that these media are not truly independent and that they actually serve a special uh, interest, right? So again, the, the representatives of the regime use uh, all sorts of labels to, to label these outlets and to make their own supporters suspicious about independent reporting. You know, it's all just part of the culture of war, according to them. So any inconvenient fact uh, can be labeled as a, as a mere opinion or as a malevolent uh, perspective, right? And again, if everything is just a matter of perspective, if everything is just a matter of opinion, then our own opinions and our own actions 
do not really have to be rationalized. They do not really have to be justified, right? The idea is somebody will have to be dominant, and it's for us better to be dominant than, than if they are dominant who constantly accuse us and want to force things on us and so on. In other words, you simply cancel anything you don't like, or you dissolve it falsely by saying it's fake, untrustworthy, or mere opinion. In short, shutting down free speech is a key component to guard against. Lesson 5. Find the agenda behind what's being said. Misinformation, we heard, is simply false, but disinformation actively follows an agenda to distort the truth. Here's Marius Turda on being alert to reading the intentions behind information, especially in illiberal regimes, who seek to shut down free discussion of certain topics. During this pandemic, uh, this is one of the very hot topics, uh, whether behind some of the news, behind some of the information that circulates in the media, there is a certain intention, whether there is a government behind it or maybe a, an agency. We hear many conspiratorial stories about the vaccines, the anti-vaccines. We hear about various organizations being involved and indeed various people being involved in putting forward certain agendas. So intentionality seems to be a very crucial word and a very important concept, I suppose, in the discussion about fake news. Examples that we heard include how in both Hungary and Poland, the pandemic was linked to anti-immigration rhetoric. In itself, a valid political position for many, in any democracy these discussions happen, This was nevertheless spun in the Hungarian case, as we heard in our fifth episode, with inflammatory and deliberately misleading speculation as to the causes. In this case, Iranian students, who had been in Hungary for a long time and who had nothing to do with importing the virus, were scapegoated and deported. But, as we've heard, these policies and strategies did not tend to emerge overnight, which leads us to lesson six. The liberalism is a process not a fixed state, and as such, be wary of mission creep, intensification and change. Modern illiberalism, at least in Western democracies, hasn't tended to emerge out of the box as a fixed state in the way we tend to at least perceive 20th century totalitarianisms. In the discussion of Hungarian media, Professor Turda noted how the pandemic has been used as a cover to accelerate certain trends. With his interviewee, Mihaly Selaligal, a professor from Budapest, stating the following. Well, there are many changes in Hungary uh, since 2010 uh, with regard to information policy. Some of them are hard changes, others are soft changes. And among the soft changes, I would like to, uh, to mention the, the problem of self-censorship, which obviously appears in an environment of increased fear which can immediately be related to a hard element, because last year there was an order issued by the Ministry of Human Resources to all hospitals that they were not allowed to give interviews to the press. So no doctor is allowed to talk to the professional media with a name and with uh, his face. No video reports could take place at COVID stations. I'm not talking about intensive station where the BBC was not allowed in in the United Kingdom either. But for instance, in the United Kingdom, there was an alternative solution. Doctors had a chance to film themselves 
certain elements that they found important as information for the public. And that was edited by the BBC and, and later broadcast. Well, it was nothing similar in Hungary. Lesson seven, fight fire with light. An important idea emerging from our discussions was the corrosive influence on nationalist rhetoric of exposure to other narratives. In that sense, we heard a plea for a broader humanism with a transnational perspective, one that does not negate loving one's own country or valuing one's own traditions. In other words, a perhaps broader definition of patriotism than some nationalist governments would allow. Taking the example of the Holocaust and how it's instrumentalized to support this or that historical interpretation, here's Jean-Paul Himka again. The more people are exposed, the more people travel to different countries, the more people understand, I think, different ways of life and different attitudes, the more I feel they will grow to a normal understanding of the Holocaust. To my mind, the Holocaust should be part of history. And history should be part of a general person's education. It should not be something that is instrumentalized to defend a state or to denigrate a state. You know, we see that all the time. I personally, I look at all these people who died. I studied how so many of these people died. And I think, and the same is true, by the way, of the famine. This is not politics. This is people's tragedies. Move for the future. Another suggestion, this time from Jan Grabowski, was for academics to actively embrace being public intellectuals, even if this is not a position they inherently wanted to take. And so to lesson eight, and it's a question. Carrot or stick? In other words, coercion or persuasion? The last of these points was unresolved in our discussions, but we offer it for further consideration. Mentioned at least twice was a so-called constructive approach from, let's call them broadly defined, Western nations that look to assist those they perceive as following illiberal routes towards more inclusive approaches. In other words, how do we avoid berating other countries for perceived wrongdoings and instead perhaps offer positive, collaborative projects perhaps even with financial assistance. In this context, the policy of so-called Vergangenheitsbewältigung, coming to terms with the past, which the victorious allies applied to Germany after World War II, was offered, not as a one-for-one -one comparison, but a way of suggesting that there might be other ways of considering tackling these thorny issues, and to find frameworks for cooperation that don't only blame these countries and perhaps blame later generations as perpetrators, but actively look to reconcile, to draw a line under divisive areas of history and offer a forum in which to discuss them and then move on. So far so paternalistic and optimistic, of course, it's a tricky one. And in Jan Garabowski's view, it would demand work on both sides and, in his view indeed, no compromise with those who seek to keep excavating the most divisive forms of historical rhetoric. Here's what he thinks we should do. 
to confront the agents of illiberalism. Imagine that uh, this notorious Institute of National Memory Remembrance that I mentioned before, and probably you heard about this, but many of our listeners did not. In just last February, they appointed the head of their office in Wrocław, which is the second largest Polish city, a neo-Nazi, I mean, person who was, you know, raising his right arm, a Hitler, Hitler goes. Uh, so would, what more do you, so the thing is, these people should not have any kind of presence outside of Poland. And they do have presence. They are trying to, to sell themselves as historians. They are not. They are employees hired by the Polish state to do the state's bidding. So we have to confront the people who are, as we embargo, let's say, Putin's oligarchs, we have to embargo people who are involved in destruction of free research, who are falsifying the past and who are, let's say, making their own contribution to the destruction of the civic society. I believe that uh, trying to offer some kind of a discount on history only will aggravate the problems that we see right now. And so, as this bonus episode draws to a close, we clearly offer no single solution, no visible panacea, and even perhaps some gentlemanly disagreement on harder versus softer approaches. But some overriding themes do stand. Vigilance support from the outside, continued efforts from the inside, and a focus on the future to help dissolve toxic narratives into a positive project where national history can perhaps become patriotic rather than nationalistic, handled in an open, mature, scientifically and factually sober way, collaborating internationally, bolstering nations individually, as well as as a community of nations in which people live as citizens without censorship and without coercion. We invite you to delve deeper into each of these cases in our earlier episodes. But meanwhile, on behalf of myself, of Professor Turda, and all of our distinguished guests, thank you very much for listening.